WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is Impact's one-hour discussion of news, events, and organizations within MSU's community. And now, this week's Exposure. Hello everyone and welcome back to Exposure. I'm your host Stephanie and today I have a surprise for you guys. We have a co-host. Please welcome Michael. Hi everyone. This is Michael Anthony Suarez aka Moss because I always leave people wanting more. He's going to be awesome and we're excited to have him as my co-host this year. But enough about us. We have someone here from ASMSU. So please welcome Mario. Thanks for coming. Hello. Thank you for having me. Mario, can you please start off by sharing a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, uh, I'm a senior. This is my fourth year at Michigan State University. I'm majoring in political science and minoring in leadership of organizations. Um, And this is actually my fourth year being involved in ASMSU as well. Awesome. Can you talk quickly about how you felt when you uh, were like, when you accepted the nomination for president of ASMSU? Yeah, well, first, ASMSU stands for the Associated Students of Michigan State University, for those who might not know. But when I decided to run and submit my candidacy, it was a very surreal moment for me. Um, I don't think anyone typically plans to be the president of ASMSU when they first get to campus. Uh, So it was definitely a combination of many different events at the university, uh, within my own life, within ASMSU itself, that led me to that moment. And how did you first get involved with ASMSU? Yeah, so when uh, I was a uh, senior in high school, uh, as soon as I got accepted to Michigan State, I searched up MSU student government on Google. And the first thing that popped up was ASMSU. Um, I was kind of involved in high school, but I wanted something that offered more. And definitely, I I got almost more than what I asked for. Well, and ASMSU does a lot more than just student government. I feel like a lot of our students don't necessarily know what you guys do all the time. So can you speak on what you guys do from the day-to-day as well as how you help students? Yeah, so um, we are student government. And with that, we have multiple departments. Um, for example, we have our class councils. Um, each class council is, has its own theme that's geared towards um, the respective class. Uh, we also have the Red Cedar Log. That is the university yearbook. Uh, it is full color, over 300 pages. Um, we have an entire uh, department based on designing it, uh, writing for it, um, and eventually producing it. And that comes out. The, the current one is actually out now. With this, we also have our uh, staff side. So this is anywhere between human relations, marketing, um, information technology, sustainability, health and safety. Uh, so it is definitely not your typical impression when you hear student government. Um, of course, we have our legislative side. Um, we also have quite a few services for students. Um, most notably, we have our Safe Ride program, which picks up students from 9 to 2.30 a.m., seven days a week. Uh, we also have iClicker rentals, free blue books, free graphing calculator rentals, uh, free printing. So we have definitely expanded throughout the years, um, and we're always looking for ways to do more and to build upon what we already have. Absolutely. I think it's awesome that you guys are looking to help out you know, your fellow students, and that's very important to do. Yeah, Mario, thank you for sharing that. I think it um, really uh, explains what ASMSU is. If I can go in a little bit deeper, and mm-hmm. if you can elaborate a little bit on what the purpose of this organization is, like why is it important that MSU has this organization? Yeah, so the bottom line of ASMSU is to serve students. Um, going more into depth, it's to enhance our student experience at Michigan State, and then to amplify and to give a platform for the issues and whatever concerns that students want to address at the administrative level. Uh, So think of it as a microphone to the student body. And while you've been involved, what's one of the biggest things I think that you have done while you've been involved? Like what's one issue that you've been able to talk to or like raise awareness for? Yeah, well, uh, a big one these past few years has definitely been with sexual assault. A few years ago, we had a teal ribbon ceremony, um, raising more awareness on um, sexual assault prevention and awareness. 
uh, on campus. Yeah, it definitely is something that touched the lives of all of our students and mm -hmm. even alumni and everyone that's been you know across the world and has experienced anything like this. Mario, my follow-up question to that, and I think we've talked about this um, in other times, but I can't stress the importance of like why ASMSU exists. We've talked about sometimes with issues that come up, right, mm -hmm. and students protest and they share on social media and they really like voice their their thoughts. Can you talk a little bit about why ASMSU is important and how they're actually able to create like laws that um, are reported to the president? Like you talk about the process that 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 has. I don't think people understand that they come and talk to you all. They can put it on paper. They can and then you all relate that to to the executive you know, board mm -hmm. at MSU. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, uh, there are definitely a lot of ways um, that spreading awareness on any issue can happen. Um, for us at, at ASMSU, um, a, a typical way is through our general, general assembly. Um, so there's a stance, uh, a position that we as students choose to make it most likely goes through there. Um, and that's when the representatives decide what our stance is um, on any particular issue, um, whether it's recognizing it's on Us Week um, or Mental Health Awareness Week uh, towards some more serious uh, bills, such as calling for Luana K. Simon's resignation. Again, just to let you guys all know, you're listening to Exposure here on WDBM East Lansing, and we're talking to Mario, who is the president of ASMSU. Um, to continue on that topic, though, how can people be like directly involved with that legislative process? Like you said, do you guys draft these in meetings? Like, how do you come up with mm -hmm. something that is valuable enough to bring to the president? Yeah, so um, if you want to be directly involved in that process, during the spring we have elections for uh, your respective college, whatever that might be. Um, but if you're not a formal representative, uh, do not fear. You can reach out to your current representative and you know ask them what they're working on, what initiatives um, and issues you want to bring forward to the table. Um, you can work on your bills with them. Uh, we also have an entire team that's ready and excited to help others on their bills. Um, every other week, we actually have our committee meetings. Um, that's a great place where we typically workshop bills and discuss any ideas regarding them. Thanks. Yeah. Mario, mm -hmm. what is your team's vision for the year? In terms of our team, with a new uh, university president, um, Samuel L. Stanley Jr., uh, a big a big goal is to ensure that the students and the administration continue to be connected with one another. Uh, there is, there has been already the um, Rob McCurdy, the CIO. He is being replaced uh, with Dr. Melissa Wu. Uh, so that's just a couple, um, a couple of examples of administrative changes. The provost resigned. Uh, so ensuring that students still have a prominent voice within the administrative process as much as possible uh, through these decisions and structural changes, wherever they might end up being. Um, beyond from that, continuing to advocate for mental health awareness, sexual assault, um, and with a new rollout of block tuition, ensuring that students um, who are impacted know what resources are there for them, um, and to further advocate to ensure that students are seeking the proper care and attention that they need. Well, as like a student, sometimes it's hard to seek out that care. And, you know, when you need something, it's hard to ask. So mm -hmm. how would you encourage students to reach out to you? Yeah, so uh, part of that falls on us. So uh, with our promotion and um, awareness efforts, with our marketing team and um, reaching out with different campus orgs, um, what I would say to students, you know, if for students who, you know, it's it's who don't always know what they need, Definitely a great place to start is um, going on our website, uh, asmsu.msu.edu. Um, if you s send an email to our um, info, it's like info at asmsu.msu.edu, uh, they'll be able to direct you to anyone who could answer your questions. Um, like our Facebook page, uh, try and stay informed on social media platforms. Um, and, and we are always look, 
doing tabling um, throughout these next few months. We plan on doing more awareness tabling. Oh, for sure. I mm-hmm. always see you walking around <laughs> campus. I'm like, does this guy go to class or uh, not? <laughs> good question. Just kidding. But Mario, thank you so much for being here. Where can the students find you? Uh, where are you located? And do you have any office hours? Yeah, so we are located in the Student Services Building right across the Broad Art Museum. Uh, we are on the third floor. Um, there are a lot of ways to get involved, um, as I mentioned fairly earlier, but we have our engagement office, which is right when you walk in. It's room 307. Um, you can go to the engagement office assistant, um, and that's a great way to get connected and involved. Um, as for me in my office hours, uh, I actually – Depending on uh, the weeks, I will be having a coffee with Caicos, uh, and the, that's typically from 10 to 11 a.m. Is it free uh, or do we have to pay for it? Oh, it's, oh come on. <laughs> it, it is free. Uh, there will be light refreshments, um, so stay tuned on social media for the exact dates for that. Mario, is there any resources that you think are underutilized and students on MSU campus may not know about? Yeah, so a uh, pretty significant service that not many students know that we have until they need it is um, our legal services. So whether it's you need a, um, you want a lawyer to treat over your housing contract or you get a minor in possession, whatever it might be, and you need a lawyer, um, we have those services for you. An actual lawyer, lawyer, they will um, help you with whatever issue you're facing. And another resource we have, our uh, student rights advocates. So they deal with more of the uh, university level. Um, for instance, if a professor, uh, you feel like a professor falsely accused you of cheating, uh, these students will help you throughout that process. Um, and they're definitely, it, it is more university centered, so nothing with laws, uh, but more so university policy. Um, along with this, we have our short term loans, so up to $300 a semester. Um, so, any way that we can help take the burden off of students who are trying to receive an education and create a better life for themselves is what we're in the business of doing. And if more people want to get involved and volunteer for Mm -hmm. you guys, how do they go about doing that and what can they get their hands on to help with? Mm -hmm. Uh, So especially with initiative weeks, like It's On Us, which will be middle of October, Mental Health Awareness Week, we're always looking for more hands to help us assist in these outreach events. Um, So I I would recommend staying up to date on our Facebook page. That's where we're updating the most on events and activities. And then um, depending on what's posted, if you're interested and uh, you desire to help us out in that, um, reach out. You can message the accounts uh, directly and we'll help get you connected and involved. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Is there anything else that we can do to help as impact or as students in general to help promote you guys's organization or other things well thank you for having me i mean this is already a great first step uh, in exposure i love the idea of it awesome well thank you those are all the questions that i have on behalf of 89 fm the impact radio station we are really glad that you were able to come in and talk to us thank you Hello and welcome back to Exposure. I am your host, Michael Suarez, and today we have the pleasure of interviewing a few MSU participants from the Education Abroad Program, International Engagement in Mexico. They are also involved with the fundraising organization, International Engagement Volunteers, which is a student organization at MSU. Today we have Ricardo Gracias, Alex Rocha, and Yolanda Gonzalez. Hello, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having us here today. Of course, thank you for being here. So can you start off by uh, talking a little bit about yourself? Yes, so my name is Yolanda Gonzalez. I'm a third year student here at Michigan State University and I'm majoring in interdisciplinary studies of community governance and advocacy. Um, I'm Alex Drocha. I'm a second year student and I'm studying construction management. I'm Ricardo Gracia. I'm a second year as well and I'm studying social work. Awesome, thank you so much for being here. Spartans. So Yolanda, can you talk a little bit about what the purpose of the organization is? You know, today we're here to talk about IV and IEM. Um, can you 
talk a little bit about what the difference between those two organizations are so our listeners can get a little bit more of an understanding on that? Yeah, yeah. So um, IAV is the International Engagement Volunteers, um, and we are a student organization that helps fund um, and support the IEV program, which is the International Engagement in Mexico. It's a study abroad that we go to during spring break. So that's the two difference between the two organizations. So essentially, the IEV is the fundraising organization, right, that helps support the projects that happen in Mexico. And then the IEM is the study abroad program, right? That Correct. Awesome. Correct. Two different things. IEM, study abroad program in Mexico, and IEV, the student organization that um, profits with the with the volunteer. Awesome. So did any of you all participate in the IEM trip? Yes. So I actually went my first year um, to Huatulco. So I went to Huatulco, Oaxaca um, on spring break. Awesome. What can students expect like when they go to this trip? Like what was it new to you? Had you ever been to Huatulco, Mexico before? So my family's actually from Oaxaca. So I was very grateful to um, get Huatulco uh, as a choice um, and I went and it was it's a good way to see the behind closed doors on how a nonprofit actually works you know the projects that we do there for in need communities especially in Mexico so yeah okay, and I went to Merida Mexico well Merida Yucatan and it was a really interesting experience for me because I went with certain expectations and those were met with more that I didn't even expect. So it's it's a really interesting program to be part of and to participate in. And yeah. <laughs> awesome. What do you think is one thing that you were able to take from this experience um, as an MSU student? How did it impact you? The way it impacted me, I would have to say it was more sort of realizing how much we take for granted certain things even though it's like the most minimal part of the day, even just waking up and knowing that we have food to eat for some, it might not be that way. Wow. Yeah, that's very true. And um, I think that when, you know, students go to this trip, like you said, it is definitely eye opening and in different ways to different students. Mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing that. What about you, Alex? How was your experience? What city did you go to? Um, I went to Oaxaca, Mexico, um, so the city, of the capital of Oaxaca. Um, so my experience was very eye-opening because, um, as Ricky said, like, we don't really know what we have. To, I mean, this trip just really opens up your eyes to see what you really do have. Like, we take advantage of these things that, you know, some people don't have. So just really eye-opening. Thanks. Alex, can you talk a little bit about, like, what students can expect when they're doing this study abroad program, like if you can talk about like one day, like your schedule, how it was and how it worked, just so they can kind of get an idea. Um, so my schedule for like one of the days was our camp was an hour away from where we were staying. So we would get up, eat breakfast, and we'd be the first ones to leave. So when we would get to the site, um, we we're working with the school with kids with disabilities so we would be there from 8 a.m. to, I think, 2 in the afternoon, and we would um, interact with the kids. We would uh, help out, like, painting the school is what one of the things we were doing. And um, from there, we would take an hour trip back, and we would rest a little bit and go on with our um, last meeting of the day with the group and go off to dinner and get some rest for the rest of the night. Awesome. So when you're saying you got back, uh, you met with the group, what did that exactly entail? So meeting with the group is one of the things that um, you'll do because there'll be a certain amount of people that go to the city in Mexico, and you just um, meet with them. It's like a little group meeting. You talk about um, how your day went, how was the site, and um, how it's going so far, and what do you think, what to expect by the end of the week of the spring break trip. Awesome. And what about you, Ricardo? Like, is When you went to uh, Yucatan, right, to Merida, what did you get to see? Like, Did you get to, was it just all like, uh, being involved in the community and helping that? Or did you also get to experience like extracurricular stuff? Like, did you get to go sightseeing? Yeah, of course. Like, it, between, because the way we left, we got there the Saturday before the week started. So the weekends were usually more sightseeing. And so one place that I really liked was this part called the Cenotes. And it's really just a big crater filled with water. 
It's like 150 feet deep. The water is like crystal blue. Awesome. And <clears throat> any other sites that you went to go visit? Yeah. Um, some of the pyramids that they have, like uh, one that comes to mind is Chichen Itza. That's a really like one of the seven or ten wonders of the world. Can't really put my yeah. Yeah, it definitely is one of the seven wonders of the world mm -hmm. because it was handmade. That's awesome. And then um, Monday through Friday was more the organizations. So we would go like help out with the charities and stuff like that. But later throughout the night, when we had more free time, we would still go out around the town, like experience the culture, experience the food, the music. It was really like culture shocking as well. Very cool, very cool. Thank you for sharing. So Yolanda, after talking a little bit about, you know, these students' experiences and, you know, you are a seasoned vet in going to the, um, you know, a city in Mexico, participating as a site leader, and you were also uh, involved with the IEV organization. So why is it so important uh, that people know about the fundraising aspect of this program? So the point of the fundraising um, purpose for us as IEV, as volunteers is here, in, here in MSU, is we are raising this money for these students to finish their projects or start these projects at these, um, at these communities, these communities that are impoverished, most likely low income. Um, all the projects are different. Um, as Alex said, she was at a disability school, um, and oh, was, Ricky was at a. I was at a. It was a disability school as well. Yeah, and so and I was at a middle school, so we provided um, chairs, desks for the students. So all these projects is what the school needs. So fundraising is of really big importance. If you're going to these communities, you want to give them the best that you could. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, that's yeah. really important. I was going to also mention, is there anything um, that, like, can you talk a little bit about the projects and what the money would go to? Like, what specifically do these funds go to? So, like I said, in my and for my experience in Maturco, I we were at a middle school, so we provided chairs, desks, um, whiteboards, school supplies, clothing. That's a big thing. When we before we leave, we try to fundraise, uh, not fundraise, but donate our clothing, good quality. Um, not it's probably not the best; it's not brand new, but it helps these schools. So for my site, we um, so the way the school was, it was just one building, and the other two classrooms were built from left like materials that they could find. So we went in and we painted the basketball court that they had. We also uh, painted the buildings for them so that the kids could at least see some more color in it. And um, we did uh, like a little track for them. We painted out a track for them to like run around on and stuff like that. So because when we went in, they didn't really have that. And we also bought them school supplies um, and provided them with some clothing also. It's awesome. Yeah, I was doing some research on the organization, and this program has been going on for almost, you know, 10 years, more than 10 years, right? right. It's, it's been continuously growing, right? There's mm -hmm. almost more than, you know, 100 participants, right? And mm -hmm. there's, I think you all just added a new city this year. Mm -hmm. There's five total cities, right? right. That's amazing. And there's, uh, you know, you work with different partnerships in Mexico, right? And like you mentioned, there's different um, organizations that um, have disabilities, right, or um, that are um, orphanages and things like that. So a lot of this fundraising money goes to those types of projects, right? And yeah. I think last year uh, in one of the cities, um, they you, you all kind of were recognized uh, by the governor of one of the states, right, Oaxaca, if I'm not mistaken. So it's growing a lot of traction, right, and we're building these relationships with people in Mexico, just through this program. So that's awesome. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, my next question, I just want to ask if there's any way um, that people can help these listeners. How can they get involved? Uh, sometimes, you know, our listeners may not be an MSU student or they might be an MSU student but have never heard of this. Like, what are ways that they can get involved? What are ways that they can do to support um, IV? So we actually have events coming out during the school year. Um, we will have food fundraisers. Um, we actually have a big, our first annual 5K at Michigan State. Um, it's going to be on October 12th. Um, registration is from 11 a.m. to 1230. Um, and the 5K starts at 1245 p.m. at the MSU Auditorium. Um, you can register online. 
um, with the website, which is the link is bit.ly slash taco, T-A-C-O-S-5-K. Um, so that's another um, fundraising that we have. It's a run, but we're also going to have a fiesta. So there will be food for those participants that also don't want to run. You can always just come and enjoy some food and um, Mexican food because we are going to Mexico City. So we obviously want to provide food for um, the MSU uh, students. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. So I look forward to um, the different fundraisers that you all have coming up this year. I think the 5K is definitely a great way to start uh, the year. Again, that's October 12th, right? So right. it's coming up very soon. And like you all mentioned, they can find more information on your website, right? Mm-hmm. Um, through Migrant Student Services. The yes. There's more information there about the international engagement in Mexico programs. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Is there anything else you all would like to add? No, I just think it's a really good experience for students to um, explore a different culture, um, to understand that we are making a difference in other communities in Mexico. um, And to just to know that acknowledging that community is already a big step. And um, just it's a great experience to go to a study abroad, and it's the largest, the most diverse study abroad at Michigan State. And oh, and then you also get three credits. So that's the bonus part of this study abroad is that it's you get credits for it, and you have a great experience for spring break. And why not? And let me add one other thing. I know we haven't mentioned it, but it does take place during spring break. So just to say, like, who wouldn't want to go to spring break in Mexico, you know? Awesome. Yeah, I totally uh, understand that because it starts already getting cold around that time. So it's Mm -hmm. nice to be in the sun and in the warm. So you have a really good point there, Ricardo. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, being here and sharing with us um, about your organization. Yes. Thank you so much for having us. Um, They can follow us on social media. And then we also have an email. It's ievmsu2018 at gmail.com. Any questions? Awesome. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today, we're here with Mike Morrison. Mike, can you please tell us about yourself? Sure. So I was a user experience designer for about 10 years, and then I got really burned out, and I quit my tech career and went back to uh, grad school to get a PhD in work psychology. What is UX? So UX is user experience design. If you think of graphic design as making things, you know, very aesthetically attractive and emotional and user experience design, the goal of it is to get the user to their goal as quickly as possible without frustrating them. So if you think of a website, you've browsed like a bunch of pop-ups everywhere and you're going to click through a bunch of things and scroll through stuff just to get to what you want. That's a bad user experience. But the ones where you kind of feel like you know already how to use them, you can get right to what you need. That's a really good user experience. So it's more about eliminating frustration and getting people to goals more than it is about like emotion and like art. Thanks for clarifying that. You said that you left the UX experience because you were burnt out and tired, but you came to grad school, and that kind of is contradictory to me since grad school is pretty exhausting. What do you do here in grad school? Sure. Um, So I'm a PhD student in organizational or work psychology, and I study things that make work meaningful and the differences between like realists and dreamers. And I think I had had experiences in my former career where I had really, really meaningful work. You know, people say you study, you know, what you want to see or what you have. And I had had extremely meaningful work experiences. I wanted to understand that feeling better. And I realized I liked helping people and understanding people more than I liked, you know, coding websites all day, which is perfectly fine in its own. So that's why I wanted to come back and study psychology for real. And then I ended up going back a little bit to UX design and bringing it to psychology. So it sounds like then that you took the technical training that you gained from the private industry and now you're taking those skills to apply it now here in an academic setting. That's exactly right. It's sort of like I think when you have a career, you see, you learn to see the world a different way. And I learned to see the world as a user experience designer and then I came to science and I realized that they needed user experience design more than they needed my psychology that I was researching. And so I kind of shifted back a little bit. I agree. Like if you go to a conference and you see a presentation, it's just a lot of words and a lot of data just thrown at you. But half the time, the room doesn't even really understand what the person is presenting. 
How have you applied UX to your graduate thesis? So my thesis is just is just normal science. If you read it, it would just be an overwhelmingly technical paper. But I've applied it more to presentations and posters. Um, when you're a user experience designer, you kind of accept that people are lazy. We've evolved to be lazy. We want the maximum possible information for the least possible effort. And I think in science, that's vulgar. That's like, oh, I'm not lazy. No, I'm hardworking. But you know, in user experience design, we just like, no, it's cool. Everybody's lazy. Everybody's lazy. So let's just design for lazy. And so what I do is try to design my presentations and posters less to show that I did a bunch of work and more for engagement and accepting that people have a limited attention span and get overloaded very quickly. When I do a presentation or a poster in science, I'm really thinking about how to emotionally move people and how to keep them engaged and keep them from getting bored more than I'm thinking of the science of a data or things like that. It's more, um, I focus more on the story um, because I learned that on the internet. On the internet, if you bore someone for a second, what do, they, what do you do when you get bored on a website? You click the back button, right? So for 10 years, I got sort of conditioned to be afraid of boring people. And I think I try to apply that to my scientific presentations. You mentioned that in your thesis, you're looking at what the difference is between realists and dreamers. Can you go into a little bit more depth about what that means? Sure. So there's this process in your brain that helps you sort of zoom out or zoom in. But if you think of like screwing in a light bulb, you've screwed in a bunch of light bulbs. So you can kind of think about like you're bringing light to your daughter's room or, you know, and you're not really thinking about how to screw in the light bulb. And that's most people. But some people are kind of dysfunctional in their zoom. Some people like if you think of like the IRS agent, he's like really zoomed in and like hyper detailed and he's screwing in that light bulb and he's thinking like, oh, and like rotating the sphere of glass and the screeching of the metal and I can't do it. And just like, what if it breaks? going to break all over my hand. The shards of glass are going to go into my skin. And he sort of of gets freaked out about that. It's it just that low level of detail. And if you, at the other end, if you think about like the, the artist, like the abstract, flowy, emotional artist is screwing in that same light bulb and they're like, is this really hurting the environment? Like, is this just perpetuating capitalism? Do I support capitalism? What does this say about me? They're like super zoomed out and neither of them are screwing in the light bulb efficiently, right? So I'm kind of interested in those dysfunctions, people who are too zoomed out or too zoomed in. And that's kind of what I'm hoping to do for my dissertation. And how does that relate to the concept between dreamers and realists? So the, the hyper-detailed people, they tend to be very focused on procedure, on how things happen, on whether something is feasible or not. Um, whereas dreamers, people who are very zoomed out, tend to think about how desirable something is, right? It's like it, they go for that big dream shot. It doesn't matter how feasible it is, right? Um, so if you think of someone like Elon Musk, who's like, uh, you know, we've got to like hit this giant goal and, and achieve sustainable energy for the entire planet, but he misses deadlines and then misestimates how long things are going to take and things like that. That's very normal for someone who's that zoomed out, because when you zoom out, you start missing those procedural details. And at the other end, you have people who, you've heard the phrase, can't see the forest for the trees. You have people who are hyper-realistic. They're very practical. They can plan very, very effectively. They have trouble zooming out and seeing that broader meaning. How do we find that balance? Most people have, I, I don't know this for sure, but I, I, this is all theoretical at this point, but I think that um, most people most people probably can zoom out and zoom in. Most people probably have that balance. Um, but that's a good question for people at either end um, because I think it's, it's probably a, a comfort level. I think people who are very detail-oriented are kind of uncomfortable kind of zooming out. And I think people who like prefer to be head in the clouds are kind of uncomfortable having to think about like the day-to-day -day details. And how do you study this? Right now, there's, there, are there are studies that look at how you think when you're kind of zoomed out or when you're zoomed in. So I can zoom you out right now by asking you, like, why you're listening to this radio show, right? And I can zoom you in by saying, how are you listening to this radio show? You're listening, you know, you're, you turn the dial in your car or on your phone or whatever, um, and, you know, you got the headphones on. But why you're listening to this radio show is, like, you wanted knowledge or you're interested in the latest things and because you're kind of curious, a curious person and you're zoomed out, Right. So there's a lot of study on, on studies on how you think at those different kind of zoom levels, um, but studying it in terms of people who are who gravitate one way or the other um, is a, is a good question. Right now, the way it's done is you give people a list of um, a list of things and you see if they categorize them as like you know low level. Like if you're screwing a light screwing in a light bulb, are you rotating a sphere of glass or are you like bringing light to the darkness? And that's, those are your two choices. And if you choose bringing light to the darkness, you're zoomed out. If you choose rotating a sphere of glass, you're zoomed in, which is, I think, there could, that could be improved on, which is what I want to try to do. And what would you consider yourself, zoomed in or zoomed oh, my out? Whole, my whole family is debilitatingly zoomed out. They cannot screw in light bulbs without thinking about the environment and their impact and what are they doing and capitalism and yeah, so... And it's been a problem my whole life. And my girlfriend, on the other hand, is very, very zoomed in, right? And that's the core difference between us. And I think that's what motivates me to study it because, like, it's we, we see the world so differently, but we're still reasonably effective in our own little worlds, you know? Um, and so 
Hey, and I'm sure that provides some balance to your world as well. Oh, completely. It com- yeah, it's, it's, it's balancing completely. Do you constantly find yourself trying to figure out if someone zoomed in or zoomed out? Yes. <laughs> and the ones in the middle who can do both really confuse me. I'm like, oh, maybe it won't work. My dissertation's going to fail. <laughs> but actually, I've found that like a lot of people will self-identify. And, um, and as someone, you know, a lot of people are like, the zoomed out sounds very good. You're like, oh, I'm, I'm totally a dreamer. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm, you know, I'm a big idea person, right? But there's a lot of people will be like, oh, no, I'm not that. I, I am that, I am that detail guy. Like, I, I like to be really realistic. And then I hate those dreamer guys who come in with big ideas that are completely impractical, right? I'm just like, dude, think through your stuff, you know? So it's been funny to watch, like, people very readily self-identify. And because really there are strengths and weaknesses to both ends. There really isn't one that's better than the other. And so, um because in neither of them are competent on their own fully <laughs> like so um i think that's the best that's the way i've seen so far that makes sense to me people are always self-identifying and trying to figure out how they organize themselves and i'm kind of wondering i've heard about your better poster initiative where people are learning about how to make a better poster for academia which i'll ask you to explain but i'm wondering did you come up with better poster because you were trying to actually criticize academia and think about it further but using your background knowledge of ux i think um it was definitely using the background of user experience design that um that inspired the better poster um i think what happened was i had a, a really bad health scare um, I, was, I was continuing along my career as a psychologist i was gonna you know do my dissertation get out of here get a job um ignore all the user experience design issues i saw in science um because there was no self-interest for me to do anything about it. And then I had a, a very bad health scare. And I think if you've been in that position where you've had a health scare, you've known someone who's gone through a very serious health issue, you know that they're sort of living at the mercy of science. And all you want is for science to speed up and save them. And so I wanted to do something for me and for those people to speed up science, the system of science, all of it, every disease, every discovery. I wanted it to happen faster. And I knew that it was very slowed and very inefficient right now because of these old, badly designed systems in science. And so I'm one per- I'm only one person. I can't fix scientific publishing, which is a nightmare. But I could take a swing at the poster. And the poster was kind of this low-hanging fruit because scientific posters, so there are, if you don't know, every confer- every field in science has conferences. And at every conference, there's these poster sessions where scientists share findings um, on these giant poster boards. So if you think of just rows and rows of like cubicle walls with these big posters on them, and scientists are very, very brilliant, passionate people, but they're, you know, they're beginners at design. And so they make the mistakes that beginners make, which is they fill up too much space, they center everything, um, they don't boil things down, there's no hierarchy. Um, and so you have basically a room full of, think of like driving down the highway and seeing billboards with like paragraphs all over them. You just have no time to absorb anything. All the posters are just completely overloaded with like walls and walls of text. And so what I did was I came up with a new default because, you know, we're communicating tens of thousands of new findings every year through basically the same default template for scientific posters that every field uses. So I thought if we could improve the efficiency of that default template that everybody uses, even by a little bit, since everybody uses it, it could have these big ripple effects, you know, improving knowledge dissemination across science and speeding up discovery. Um, and so what I did was I created a new default um, that it's it's very it's very sort of minimalist. Um, it has, if you think of like a, a TV with speakers on the side, you have a big center area. And in that big center area, the TV area is the main finding of the study. And that's sort of like the 10 second layer. You can learn the main finding of the study while you're walking by in five to 10 seconds. And then if you want more detail, you can walk up to the poster and there's a sidebar with like a tight summary of the study. And that's sort of like a, a one minute layer. You can get like one minute of additional detail. And then if you want even more information, if you're still interested in that study, then you can talk to the presenter who's standing there. And the presenter has a sidebar on their side where it's sort of like a cheat sheet and they have all their figures and stuff they can show you. And then if you want even more information and you want the paper, you can take a picture of the poster and it scans a QR code and gets you a copy of the whole scientific paper. So it lets attendees really learn as they're walking by and choose how much detail they want from each poster instead of just being overloaded by every single poster and not getting anything. So that was the idea, and I wanted to get it out to every field in science. I didn't want it just to get to my own field. And usually in science, if you publish a journal article, it only gets to your field because everybody only reads their own journals. Um, So what I did instead was I published a YouTube cartoon which took a long time to develop, um, and it felt very silly doing it, but I released it, and it went crazy viral across every field in science, as best I can tell. And then people started trying the design, and they started having these really, really good experiences with this poster design. The first person ever to use a uh, better poster, one best poster in the whole show. And I think when that happened, I felt a lot better. I was nervous at first. I was like, whoa, guys, I haven't tried this. And the first person 
you know, won Best in Show, and I felt a lot better. And since then, we've had lots of poster awards. I've tried it myself. Um, and it seems to be working really well so far. And we have some exit survey data already, which we're looking to get published now, that shows that um, it is overwhelmingly preferred and better for learning um, and discovery, at least you know, people perceive it that way um, than the old design, at least in one field. Um, so it's just, it's, a, it's sort of an initial pilot study, but it's, it's very, very promising so far. So to clarify for our audiences then, this better poster project that you're working on is not your dissertation. It's like a side project that you're working on. And your dissertation is the work that you're doing on people that are zoomed in versus zoomed out. That's exactly correct. The better poster thing, I call it my little like war, my poster war is completely irrelevant to my degree or my career. <laughs> it's just a complete passion project that I do because um, I think it can improve the system and I want to see it improve. Yeah, and you're making a global impact, it sounds like. I've seen it all over Twitter feeds, uh, people praising this better poster format. So congratulations on the success for that. That's really awesome. Thanks very much. It's been I, I didn't think anyone would use it. I thought I would have to be bothering conferences for years, being like, please watch my stupid little cartoon, and then like it blew up in 24 hours. And I think... Really, I'm so happy that people were brave enough to try it because it's very scary in science to try new things. Scientists are always trying new things with their work, but professionally, they conform a lot because they're very afraid. There's a lot of imposter syndrome in science, so people just sort of are afraid to step out a lot of times professionally. And so I think it's been great that people have been brave enough to like to try it. And then once a few people do, it just it emboldens the rest. So I'd like to add some clarification for our audience. Some people might not be familiar with an academic poster scenario. Would you... I'll explain a little bit about academic posters and conferences a little, please. Sure, yeah. So um, my friend Jacob Bradburn, who I think you guys had on your show, um, talked about, uh, he calls academic conferences kind of like Coachella for nerds, right? It's just where like every every year, whatever your field is or whatever your little subdiscipline, like mine is like work psychology, you all go to this one big conference, you show up to this hotel in mass and you do presentations, and you do posters and you like hang out with each other and people that you don't get to see very often. Um, and then poster sessions are sort of an event within that. And poster sessions were originally like, like the lowest rung to, to participate in the scientific process. It's, it's like um, if you're a if if you're a new researcher, you're like, oh, you can do a poster. You know, like maybe you're not ready for a presentation or a symposium yet, but you can do a poster. Um, and then grad students still do posters too. Um, and so they're kind of treated as this like second class citizen um, of, of conferences. And I think. Because they were sort of originally designed as just a participation kind of idea, um, I don't know that we ever really thought through like what we really wanted out of poster sessions or what they could be or their potential, um, or how to de- and much less how to design individual posters and things like that. And so I think that's what science is doing now, um, which is really cool to see. I agree with Mike because I don't think the poster sen- scene has really changed much within the past few years. Like it's maybe developed a little bit because some people get really fancy with a lot of technology and they'll have a ton of televisions and people put their poster up on televisions instead of having it printed out and people also complain about the economic burden that can be on a student or a lab to print a poster but then you can also see some people having like a tablet over there to show like some nice video or some animation and then some people will just print out flyers but there's no actual standard out there for how to present your research in a poster scenario they may say like oh, your poster has to be this size by this size so they, they can fit it over there. But that's basically it. That's exactly right. They don't they don't give you really any guidelines because no one really, like, I guess no one has guidelines. Um, and you just, so what ends up happening is like conferences just copy the layouts that other conferences are using. And then like they tell you and then you don't know what to do because you're a new grad student and you're afraid of looking dumb or whatever. And so you just copy what somebody else d- had done. And then you just and then you just copy yourself. And so like it really that that's why every field in science uses the same design because everybody just sort of mimics what everybody else is doing. Um, and so it just there was never like no one ever said this is I think people had this concern that it was a bad design like everybody had sort of a bad feeling about it like it could be better than this is really overwhelming but we just kept doing it and I've had people email me and say like Mike you know I was at poster sessions in the 70s and they look the same you know it hasn't changed even like the negative experience of them hasn't changed I'm really not surprised that people told you that like I I was just guessing some years but I'm I'm really not surprised but um, I'm wondering, do you think that better poster can get better? Like, how can we improve it? Because do you think that it, some people might say, like, oh, is it a waste of space to use that much space just to put a title? Oh, absolutely. Um, I really uh, only intended better poster to be sort of a version one default to build from, right? 
you've heard the old saying that um, perfection, perfection is not when you have nothing to add, it's when you have nothing to take away. So there's lots of new things we can add to Better Poster and different ways to do it. And, the, and really underlying Better Poster are these user experience design principles. And if you knew those, you could do all kinds of new layouts and things. Um, so I really think it's, it's just the beginning. It's just what I, wanted, what I wanted it to be was like, if you're not sure what to do, just go Better Poster. Like instead of just doing the wall of text, right? But if you have ideas for something crazier to try, just go, go with it. Play jazz, modify it, do something completely new. And I think that's one of the things that people don't realize who presented these poster sessions is that I talk to conference chairs like every week now, and they all want to see more creativity in poster sessions. They all want to let you do whatever you want. They want to see you innovate. They don't want to see you keep copying and things like that. And so, yeah, I really encourage people to just go nuts with posters. Try your craziest idea, um, but be really respectful that people have a very limited attention span. And the hardest thing about doing like um, more effective designs is teaching yourself to cut really brutally, which is the opposite of how you're trained as, sci as a scientist. Um, and so in, in regards to the, uh, the blank space thing, I mean, negative space is very functional in design. Um, if you look at beginner designers, what they do is they think every, every blank space is something they need to fill up. And if you look at very advanced designers, like, like just the legendary designers, their designs are almost entirely blank space because it's negative space because that sort of, it, it helps focus the eye on different things. Um, and so I'm not saying that we couldn't reduce the amount of negative space. There's probably room for graphs and images and things like that and better poster. And I was hoping to see that. Um, but I would rather see people leave it blank and keep the, po and keep the poster focused um, than clutter it. But if you do have an idea to add, add a sensible graph or add some imagery behind it, that can really enhance it on top of what it already, already is. It's one thing to change the format of the poster itself. But what advice can you give to students about actually presenting the material? Because sometimes the students also have this generic way of just talking about their research. But how can they take a better poster format from the graphical design and bring that into their speaking? I think the best thing you can do is protect part of your natural personality for, for this part of your professional life. So I think, you know... All the things you do in science or as a student, you do for a grade. You do to please some teacher or please your professor or like make a reviewer happy. And so you're just trying to show that you did a good job or you're trying to talk like you did a good job and be professional. When you, when you talk to people or when you present science, when you go to communicate it, drop that completely. You, you want to communicate science as casually as you talk to a friend or family member who has no idea what you're doing. And, and that confidently and with that sense of like safety that it doesn't really matter how you say it, you're just kind of having fun with it. And that's really opposite of how you're conditioned in science. You're conditioned to like cover every base and never say anything wrong. But if you embrace that like fun side of yourself, like you'll do such a better job communicating. You'll probably say it faster. You'll probably say it in a more memorable way. Um, and just sort of, you just have to switch modes and just be free of that sense of like judgment and like give yourself that like psychological safety to say it however. And I think for teaching science communication, I think that has implications too. I think when we teach science communication, we have to give students an opportunity to like just freewheel and in like a judgment-free kind of zone and develop a sense of feedback, not when like they're getting a bad grade or a good grade or doing enough work or not doing enough work, but when they're losing or getting or gaining the audience's attention. And that's, that's hard. It's easier said than done, but that's what you need to be a good communicator. You have to develop that sort of spidey sense about like when people are lost or when they're engaged, um, which is the opposite of just turning in a big mess of text for a grade. I agree. I would say it's safe to say that Chelsea and I also feel the same way about everything you just said. It's the main reason why we founded this radio show. So that way we can give other graduate students the opportunity to show off their personality while talking about their research in a way that doesn't have to feel so formal. So thank you for always, you know, also heading that route as well when it comes to the poster. Oh, no, that's great. And that you guys are doing that. I think when grad students come on this, it gives them that real practice, right? Like, um, and I think we, we, I would like to see so much more of that, you know, and I think if, if every scientist had to know that they were going on the radio to talk about their research, we would, we would train ourselves completely differently, you know. I agree with everything that you're both saying because I think it's very important for people to actually put their personality into their research. You can have awesome data, but if you don't have any personality or any emotions into it, no one's going to really be engaged when you're speaking. For example, like a month before you actually came out with the Better Poster YouTube video, I went to my professor or my boss and I told her, I was like, I want to make a graphical abstract. She's like, okay, cool, go for it. And I was like, okay, I want to make my poster look different. 
And so I studied the bladder and I tried out this design where I put a gigantic bladder on the on the poster. And I was like, okay, this gets people attention, but it's not doing anything. So I actually make a graphical abstract and I put it smack in the middle and I put the title, but I didn't do the block with the color like how you did. And because I did that and I was able to effectively communicate my research, I won best poster. And it wasn't because of my specific data. It was also because people were able to understand what I was talking about. And I think it's so important for people to actually keep pushing forward. But some people might just be like, like you're saying, like they're like, okay, they're lazy about it. They're just gonna be like, okay, better poster 1.0. They're not going to go any further than that. People aren't going to be like, oh, let me put a fancy border or something like that. Because I've heard a lot of people say like, oh, I just got this template off of my lab. And they just copy it and just keep going there and there. And I'm curious now, how do you think that posters will keep evolving now? So I think that if, if I have any say in the matter, um, I'd really like to see them keep going in the direction of very, very fast learning. So if you think of a, a, a paper, you know, it takes you an hour to read a paper on one topic. That's how you, if you have an hour to read, to look at one thing, you do a paper. If you have an hour to do three things, you go to a, a symposium and you see three presentations in an hour, 15 minutes each, right? Or whatever, plus pad time. And then if you think of where poster sessions would fit into, the, into that, right now, it takes you five to 10 minutes to go through a poster if it's a wall of text, right? So you're getting like, again, three or four, that's, that's optimistic in an hour, right? I think that's a missed opportunity. We could make posters so fast. What if we could make them fast enough to get 50 posters in an hour, to be able to walk through a room and feel like your brain's just getting this giant software update and be as engaged as you are in like an art show where you're just like fascinated and like recharged. And some people do an okay job. Some people do amazing jobs. They like recharge you and get you interested again and you can't wait to see the next poster. Um, and you end up attending multiple poster sessions because they're so creative and so easy and accessible. I think that's where I'd like to see it go. I mean, if it goes there, if poster sessions become the fastest way to learn what's going on in your field, you go to every one. You, you, it would be it would become a main draw instead of a second class citizen, and it would teach um, it would teach scientists actual science communication skills. Because right now, splattering your paper all over a poster does not teach you how to communicate science. Sitting with it and trying to just brutally, painfully boil your perfect study down into a minute of like content that's engaging that's painful but you will learn so much about science communication from it and so it'll, it'll train us to be better science communicators it'll give that creative side that wants to put giant bladders on posters which i think is an amazing idea um it'll give that an outlet and, and reward it in a way that it should be rewarded so i think if that helps i think that's where it's going to me it's a cross between exploring an art show and getting like a really fast software update on everything that's going on in your field that's where i'd like to see it go i don't know if i if we can get it there but i'm gonna try i think you're making really great efforts yeah, and I, I agree. I think it's really great work that you're doing, and we really need to continuously push to not let our standards stagnate, but we should always try to push forward and make something new and better. So thank you, Mike, for joining us today for this interview, and good luck with the rest of your dissertation. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on SciFiles. <laughs>